0: If you don't have any omega 3s like you explain that like the body needs to turn over the cells and everything and then there's lipids in it and then the brain needs to turn over the cells like to change the cells to repair the brain and everything in the process of repairing these cells of generating new cells if there's no omega 3s available it will take other fatty acids that are available My conception of this is that once you age, you accumulate these small kind of dysregulation in the fatty acid profile in your brain cells and all over your body. And then this can change a little bit like how your cells functions and their best functionality, if I can
1: say that. Welcome to Nutrition Without Compromise, a podcast brought to you by Orlo Nutrition. We believe that nutrition shouldn't be an either or, that you should never have to sacrifice your morals for your health or that of our home planet. Join natural products veteran Karina Belizzi and experts from around the globe as they discuss healthy solutions that are better for you and better for the planet.
2: Welcome to another interview episode of Nutrition Without Compromise. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi And today we are going to dive into the world of emerging research in the world of omega-3s as we connect with my friend, Melanie Plourd. She is a full professor at the Université de Sherbrooke in Quebec, Canada. Her research program is developed around two typical research themes. One to understand how omega-3s are transferred from the blood to the brain, and also to to maximize omega-3 transport to the brain. She received the first institutional research chair on lipid metabolism during aging, donated by the Medical Research Center of Université de Sherbrooke. In 2020, she was awarded the Canadian Nutrition Society Young Investigator Award for Outstanding Research. Melanie, welcome to the
0: show. Thank you, Karina. It's a pleasure to be
2: here. Oh, it's such an honor. We haven't had the chance to connect in person for, I don't want to reveal, but it's, I think it's been 14 <laughs> years.
0: <laughs> oh my God.
2: <laughs> it's
0: been a long time.
2: Yeah. So before we dive into today's topic and get to learn all about your important work, I'd like for you to first share why you're so passionate about omega-3s as it relates to brain health.
0: I think one of the main reasons is that it's so complex. And I think that like complexity for me is like a challenge. And I'd like to solve some of these little parts of the puzzle and contribute. The brain is so full of omega-3s. And omega-3s are involved in many different pathways. So I just believe that there's a very important role for the brain and the Omega 3 to work together. But this there's a lot of disconnection in the literature that kind of puzzle me. And I think that's part of the my passion and my motivation to go into these like discrepancies and disconnections and try to solve these to have a better impact on health and prevention of cognitive decline is my major role, my major goal
2: overall. This touches me personally and is one of the topics that we first talked about when we met in person at ISFAL or the International Society for the Study of Fatty Acids and Lipids, which was in Kansas City that year. And at that time, research was really just starting to emerge with poster presentations on how genome alleles were connecting with our absorption of key nutrients and how that might impact our health in later life as it related to things from brain degeneration, Alzheimer's, dementia, liver disease, I mean, on down the line through all these different health challenges. And I was learning at that moment about how those within APOE4 genome type were at higher risk for just about everything, like cancer and Alzheimer's. So it made me nervous to even go out and get my own genetic test to even see where I was. And we were even talking about at that time what the ethics of it were and the worries that people might have about finding out this information and then having it selected as a pre-existing condition or something to that effect, impacting your medical insurance or who knows down the road. And of course, we've come to a space where this information is much more available now. I have taken the 23andMe test and Ancestry.com test, and I know that I have one expression of APOE4, which doesn't make me super happy. But which also wasn't a complete surprise because my grandmother suffered from Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease in her very late life. And so I was hoping that as we get this conversation started, that you could talk about where we are with research and how much the foods we consume and the nutrition we get, particularly from omega-3s, can impact this later expression of health challenges.
0: I think that there's one pretty cool stuff about APOE4 compared to other genetic risk uh, of having Alzheimer's disease, it's that not all ApoE4 carriers will develop the disease. So for me, it means that really lifestyles could have a huge impact on the expression of the disease. And I know that you're doing sports, you take care of your nutrition, that type of things, And I think you do a huge difference in the expression of the disease. So that's mainly part of my research, trying to understand how we can connect these dots together and to have better recommendation. So, clearly, my focus is on omega 3s, and I have a huge part of my research program on the APOE4 carriers. And I think that. There will be a need maybe for a specific recommendation in omega-3s for apoe 4 carriers because they have a lipid metabolism that is not the same than the non-carriers. And for this specific reason, I think that some type of supplementation might not work because to go to the brain, the omega-3s need to be packaged in some specific specific forms in the blood. So as you may know, like the lipids needs to be transported by lipoproteins in the blood because they're not soluble in water. It's no oil. Because of that, and because of the modification of the lipoprotein profile in apoi 4 carriers, our group thinks that if you give a triglycerides form of omega-3 to EpoE4 carriers, it might just be packed in triglycerides and might never reach the brain because this is not the specific form reaching the brain. So the two forms of are phosphatidylcholine or lysophosphatidylcholine and the non-esterified form of omega-3s. And this is why we try to understand whether if you're an APOE4 carriers or not, if you have different type of lipid metabolism and different type of transportation of omega-3s and whether there will be cognitive benefits after that. So we do clinical trials for that and we do also animals in animal trials because we can investigate more some of the mechanism. I don't know if I I totally answered your question. No,
2: I think you are. And this is leading us into a discussion of why, for instance, you would study these things in animals and animal models as opposed to in human populations, because for one, the life cycle is much shorter. So it's easier to do long term studies in an animal model. something like a rodent versus a human who can live 100 years. And secondarily, you can control all of the nutrition inputs. And we all know humans, (laughs) it's very hard to control all of the inputs that we consume. So if I'm hearing you correctly, if you are to take an oil that is in a liquid form, or like you would pour it in a glass of water, it floats on top. When you consume it into your body, it would be take some time to get integrated into your tissues and then potentially not be able to be carried to the brain when it's needed. A polar lipid, something of phospholipid or glycolipid would be more able to do that. And so that may be part of the reason that we see not only necessarily just a quicker absorption, but better absorption into certain tissues like those brain tissues. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, that's what we think and that's what we see with our results. And that's why we want to try different type of formulations to do. So in humans, we can do what we call pharmacokinetics or pharmacodynamics. So you give an omega-3 supplement or you give a like just one dose of omega-3 and just follow the increase and the decrease of omega-3 in the blood over a certain period. Or you can do like we call pharmacodynamics. So every week, the participants come by, we take a blood sample, and we just measure the omega-3s. And we see when they reach the plateau of omega-3 in their bloods while they are being supplemented. So we know that doing this, there's Some difference between APOE3 and APOE4 carriers. One paper is coming now. It's in press right now. We did look at the specific pool reaching the brain, and these were young APOE3 and APOE4 carriers. We had 25 in each group. They were supplemented with omega-3s for six months. In this specific group, we saw that there were mostly like a supplementation effect We haven't seen that much the genotype effect in this specific group, but in another study, we've seen a difference in the increase of omega-3 in the blood samples between ApoE4 carriers and non-carriers. But the thing that is important here is that we think that in young ApoE4 carriers, we can increase the levels of omega-3 in the two specific pools reaching the brain. And maybe this is a little bit more compromised during aging. And this is the part that we want to study a little bit more because during aging, there's a lot of modification of lipid metabolism, our lifestyles, habits, and everything. And it changed the needs and the requirements for specific kids, And I think that omega-3s might be part of that because there's increased inflammation also during aging. So this is the type of things we're trying to look at and come with like general guidelines, but also maybe some specific more guidelines for groups of the population.
2: So as I age, as I get older, I'm no longer in my 20s. Let's just put it that way it may be serendipitous that I ended up working in the polar lipid space as somebody who (laughs) has got that APOE4 genome type. So as it just stands for the audience here, I think it's important for us to just quickly break down. There are several different genome types. I recall looking at research for APOE1, 2, 3, and 4. Are those the four primary? No, it's 2, 3, and 4. 2, 3, and 4, not 1. Okay. I was just assuming one. Yeah. And if I recall then correctly, ApoE2 were at lesser risk for many of the health diseases that would relate to even things like smoking cigarettes or having bad habits, but ApoE4 was among the worst. Is that correct?
0: ApoE2, they have a hypertriglyceridemia. they are at lower risk for Alzheimer's disease but they have other risk for cardiovascular disease.
2: So nobody here gets out alive. That's the message.
0: <laughs> so the most neutral is the ApoE3 okay. genotype. <laughs> and there's no like disease risk associated to this genotype. But and it's 70% of the population, they are ApoE3. And 15 to 20% are carriers of at least one copy of the ApoE4 allele. Yeah.
2: And I fall into that bank.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you a question, because I ask this question to many people, and I know you're familiar with the field. So how many randomized controlled trials on omega-3s and cognition do you think there is in the literature?
2: Gosh, I would say tens of thousands at this point. I don't know exactly, but specifically omega-3s with regard to nutrition and the brain?
0: Well, cognition, like performing cognitive tests, just a randomized controlled trial, not prospective, not animal trials.
2: Okay. So now you've refined it quite a bit. So I would think if we're looking at something like DHA for brain health as something being a little bit more specific, rooted there, that it would be much broader because there's so much research on things even like formula with DHA, which often is from an algae source in young children. But if you're talking cognitive tests, typically that's, and older people. I venture to guess it's a small number because you're asking me. So maybe there's only a dozen. I don't know.
0: Most of the people tell me a dozen, like between 10 and 20 randomized controlled trial. But actually we found 78. 78. 78. And I think that one misunderstanding in the field was really to put all the studies together. Like People with cognitive decline, mild cognitive impairment, like they put all the studies together. But what we did is that we clipped in different groups. And actually we saw that 67% of the randomized control trial in mild cognitive impairment shows a cognitive benefits of taking the supplements. And I think that nobody's I've seen that. And overall 90% of the studies shows either a positive benefits on cognition are a neutral effect. So there's no harm of consuming like really the omega-3s. I think that's the big message that there's only a benefit. You can just have benefits on the whole body, on the brain, of consuming these these lipids. So, so I know so
2: generally speaking, the research with regard to cognitive health tends to be focused on DHA, but typically there's also EPA present. So what is your feeling about somebody that might be coming out and thinking, I know I need more omega-3? Should they be specifically looking for something that's higher in DHA or more of a balance of the two fats, EPA and DHA?
0: In that specific review, we checked whether like the type of supplements were having were having specific positive outcome, and we did not find any. So at the moment, I think that PA complements DHA, and if you give too much DHA, it will produce EPA from a specific metabolism. And from my perspective, I tend to recommend like either a balanced level of EPA and DHA, or at least having both. Because I think they're both in the fish and the strongest evidence for cognition are from epidemiological study, like prospective studies. In fish, there's both. So why should we just eat DHA? I think there's a benefit of EPA in the brain that we haven't found yet. And I'm not ready to say that there's absolutely no benefit of EPA for the brain. would make sense. I cannot support that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) If you think about human history, we've generally evolved close to the coastlines. We've consumed fish for a bulk of our history. And because fish consume algae that produces DHA and also algae that produces EPA, they get both. And that's why they have a balance in their bodies as well. And I've even seen some research on unopposed EPA, meaning a high potency EPA with no DHA, specifically for something like mood or conditions related to brain health and this kind of, I want to call it a healthy mood, healthy mind, something along those lines. But they're thinking specifically that it has to do with reduction overall in inflammatory markers in our bodies and that by quashing some of an out-of-control inflammation, let's say, from over-consuming things like seed oils or foods that are high in omega-6s, even animal meats, which are high in arachidonic acid, a competing fat in a way with the omega-3s, EPA, and DHA. And so we end up getting too much of those pro-inflammatory prostaglandins, leukotrienes, and cytokines, and then too little of those that are anti-inflammatory. So when we reduce the omega-6s overall, or, and, or I'm often and, right, increase our omega-3s, then we're able to get to a better balance, our mental health is more stable, and then we also have the building blocks that we need to create that long-term brain health, better cognition, et cetera. I just think it's no surprise when you learn that half of the fat in your brain and eyes is made up of DHA, of course you need omega-3s every day. And we live in this world, I think, where people don't necessarily understand that even though We aren't like a starfish, you can't cut off an arm and regrow it. Our bodies regenerate every day of our lives and we do replace the cells within our bodies. And if you further understand that EPA and DHA are involved in our metabolic processes within cells, are involved in every cell in our body, then you ultimately understand or you gain this deeper understanding of why it's so critical that we look to our nutrition in this particular way. If we're vegan or if we want to go more plant-based, now we can get EPA and DHA from algae oils. And even just a few years ago, it wasn't even possible to get EPA from an algae oil product, but now we have that ability. So I'm encouraged by that. I know you mentioned consuming these fats in particular as a supplement to supplement a healthy diet and to supplement something like consuming fish on a regular basis. But if somebody is not consuming fish two to three times A week, which can be a lot, and I know my kids won't eat fish that often, even if I was to prepare it for them. That we need to think about how we're augmenting our levels and what the levels of EPA and DHA are that we're bringing in. Now, in earlier conversations, we talked about things like one gram or two grams of omega threes, and these are not specifically like the alpha-linolenic acid and flax oil because of the fact that they don't provide a direct source of EPA and DHA. But even a one gram fish oil isn't necessarily going to supply one gram of EPA and DHA. I know that ISFAL and other regulatory bodies have recommended things like 500 milligrams a day of EPA and DHA. So where do you stand on that? What are you thinking people really need to make sure that they are augmenting their diet with on a daily basis?
0: It's difficult because there's so many companies selling (laughs) omega-3s.
2: And so many factors, dietary and otherwise.
0: And there's different qualities. Actually, I was so surprised not to see so many studies looking at the bioavailability of omega 3s depending on their chemical structure. In terms of the level of omega 3s, I think that like EPA and DHA at 500 milligrams could increase a lot the blood. There's a nice curve from one paper I like to show is logarithmic link between the levels of omega-3 you eat versus the levels you get in the plasma phospholipids. It's and then it looks like that between zero and one gram, there's this huge increase of omega threes. And then after one gram, it is a little bit again, but more like a plateau. So I would say between zero and one gram, it's a good way to increase. The levels of omega 3s like drastically in the blood. And whereas, after that, maybe for specific conditions, there might be benefits of having more omega 3s. But it's true that one gram of fish oil does not provide like one gram of EPA plus DHA, there's other fatty acids. So we need to be careful about looking at the labels and looking at how much omega-3s there's in the the actual supplements.
2: And I will just say this, on on my day-to-day, because I'm consuming my omegas on a In a polar lipid form, and I have trust that I'm actually getting more into my system because of that, I'm confident taking two or three small soft gels and getting about 500 milligrams of EPA and DHA a day from that and also from consuming. I try to limit my seed oils. I don't use a lot of processed foods. I do try to consume healthy omega-3s and consume things like walnuts too because they're healthy foods. They are higher in omega-3, but it's in that alpha-linolenic form. Your body has to go through several processes to actually make it into EPA and DHA. And the thing that I like to remind people is because your body is a system that the same thing that you talked about that logarithmic approach, uh, people get the most benefit essentially as far as absorption in that first gram of oil that they take in is that your body as a system is built to integrate nutrients together. And so if you consume something like a fat with your food, it may actually improve your overall absorption because digestion is slowed a little bit. But at the same time, if you're consuming a lot of competing fats, and it was also from a plant source, like your body had to make the EPA and DHA from it, and let's say you consumed seed oil alongside your walnuts, then suddenly it's a lot harder to get to the EPA and DHA that your body needs. I think this is why so much of the research behind omega-3s and in that direct EPA and DHA form is so compelling and so obvious because it's like we've circumvented that typical trap that we might fall into. And just love that about omega-3s and I think overall when it comes to giving ourselves the best chance at a healthy diet, getting them in every day is critical. I have now my son who's seven, I've trained him to swallow soft gels so we're not giving him gummies to get his omega-3s because i just hated the added sugar of that in one 500 milligram soft gel he's getting at least 150 milligrams of bpa and dha combined and i figure that's pretty good for a seven-year-old and (laughs) there's no complaining it just goes down his throat really easy with a little bit of water so i know you also are a mother you have a few kids so when did you start supplementing your kids and what was your experience like there
0: so actually, I have to be honest. I don't supplement my kids, but they eat like fish every week, at least two portions of fish every week, fatty fish. And the only time I supplemented my kids was like my son had a concussion at one time, yeah. And and then I started to open like he wasn't able to swallow the capsules, and he, he really balsamic vinegar. <laughs> so I put the omega three oils with b- balsamic vinegar on the. You made him a bruschetta. And he was eating that and said, Oh my god.
2: That could be quite good.
0: Yeah, but I, I think he liked it and like it, it was very tasty, but at least like he was eating the omega 3s and came back very fast on his foot from the concussion.
2: This is another area of research with omega-3s that's just very well documented. And even giving omega-3s in those cases intravenously to people who've had concussion to help them recover. And even as with the Sago mind survivor, I wonder if you remember that particular study where they he'd been without oxygen for some time and also had some brain trauma and swelling. And so they gave him intravenous high dose omega-3 and We're concerned with things like would he be able to procreate and simple things that we don't necessarily think about. And the results for him in particular were quite astounding. Benefits of omega-3s, brain health and beyond. So obviously in your own research, this is something... (laughs) you're vigilant about. And so let's speak for a moment to this most recent research. And as an editing note, I'm probably going to take this question and move it up close to the front of our conversation. But I, I wanted to follow where this was taking us looking at your recent study the journal published in the journal of nutritional biochemistry you're talking specifically about the plasma liver brain access of omega-3 fatty acid metabolism in a mouse study that are knocked in for the human apolipoprotein e epsilon 4 allele or apoe4 Correct. So, one of the things that this brought to mind was actually that first ISFAL I went through back in 2008, where I heard this Italian researcher say that there was a direct connection between liver and brain health, and ultimately that we all needed to mind our livers. He also went on to say that alcohol consumption was probably not a good idea. And so far, all of the neurologists I've stayed in touch with have basically said the same, there's no scientific evidence that alcohol is a good thing because there seems to be this plasma-liver-brain connection. So given that you're presently studying this, I would love for you to just share the key takeaways from this recent research just published on October 8th, 2022.
0: So this paper is very important because in my research, I was trying to see how lipids traveling in the blood are transported within the brain. And whether if you have more lipids in the blood, then you will have more lipids, more omega-3s in, in the brain as well. And I thought that it was pretty straightforward. You just increase omega-3s in the blood and then you have increased omega three in the brain and end of story. In prospective studies also, we see that if you have higher levels of omega-3s in the blood, you have better cognitive scores. So I had these animal trials where we performed many quantifications of omega-3s in the plasma, in the liver, in the brain, cortex, uh, hippocampus, and different regions of the brain. And we had tested the animal for what we call behavioral assessments. So I I don't like to talk about cognitive scores in an animal. (laughs) I prefer to say behavioral. So it's like memory tests for the animals and that type of things. And so we had the scores and I say, oh, that's a nice model to look if there's different types of links between what we have in the brain, like in the blood, like with the omega threes and whether... We have actual higher levels in the brain. And what we found is that this specific link was mostly in ApoE4 carriers. So if you have higher levels of omega-3s in the blood, they have higher, better like cognitive scores. And the opposite for the omega-6 was in the hippocampus, and I was very surprised about that. So if the ApoE4 mice have higher levels of arachidonic in the hippocampus they had lower scores on the cognitive score on the behavioral test so even if they had omega-3s they also even if they had omega-3s but the thing is that the omega-3s and omega-6 in the brain is is we can modulate because in this specific trial we had mice fed the control and we had mice fed an omega three diet. And for the correlation, we didn't like put the animals like by diet. We just pulled it all together because we wanted a huge range of omega threes. So it means that probably the it's the animal having the controlled diet that had lot higher levels of omega six, like arachidonic acids in the brain, and those le- animals who had the DHA diet have better cognitive scores. Because in this specific trial, we published a paper in 2017, showing that if POE4 mice had the DHA diet, it prevented the cognitive deficits that when they were fed the control diet. And in the POE3 mice, like whether they had the control or the DHA diet, they did not develop very strong cognitive deficits. It was linking like the omega-3s and the omega 6 in the blood and in the brain to the cognitive scores. And I think that's a very important paper showing that we don't need to put everybody in the same basket and we need to be a bit more specific about the genotype for the recommendation. But the good news with that is that if we're able to increase the levels of omega-3s in the blood then maybe in humans we are able to improve the cognitive scores. So this is reminding
2: me in a way of a study that was performed on smokers, right? And that where they showed that omega-3s, let's say in a general population, smokers who consumed omega-3s versus non-smokers who consumed omega-3s and also those that didn't. So you could have a smoker that didn't consume omega-3s. It was a two-by-two study, right? You could also have a non-smoker who did or didn't consume omega-3s. And what they found was that the non-smokers who consumed omega-3s were best off with all their health markers. And the smokers who did not consume omega-3s were worst off. However, the smokers who did consume omega-3s in their daily diet, actually had health markers comparable to a non-smoker who did not consume omega-3s and so if they're looking at cardiovascular health and incidence of cardiovascular health markers that that generally speaking it was protective and i think that's what we tend to see in the research when it comes to consumption of omega-3s is that they seem to have a protective effect against the potential onslaught of disease. And so that's why for me, it's like it's a no-brainer, like everybody should consume some. And then if you don't know your allele type, if you happen to be APOE4 versus APOE3, or if like me, you were frightened and didn't want to find out for some time, that you can at least be safeguarding your health in some way. But I also think it's very interesting to see that in most poorly performing, that the arachidonic acid levels were higher because it's probably supplanting DHA there, because that's what's present in your diet without the DHA. Your brain has to make itself with something, so it'll just use the arachidonic acid.
0: If you don't have any omega-3s, like you explain that like the body needs to turn over the cells and everything, and then there's lipids in it, and then the brain needs to turn over the cells like to change the cells, to repair the brain and everything. In the process of repairing these cells, of generating new cells, if there's no omega-3s available, it will take other fatty acids that are available. My conception of this is that once you age, you accumulate these small kind of dysregulation in the fatty acid profile in your brain cells and all over your body. And then this can change a little bit like, how your cells functions, and their best functionality, if I can say that. And then this process during aging kind of accumulates some altered... I don't like the terms altered, but like amyostasis of fatty acid is nothing throughout lives. And this is the concept of having these omega-3s to be available to involved and included in the brain lipid membranes throughout life. So if there's no omega-3s, it will be modified by another fatty acids and mostly these fatty acids available would be omega-6.
2: Yeah. Well, and this would also be why it's so dangerous to consume trans fats, right? Because if that's all you're getting and these trans fats are basically created fats, they don't really exist in nature, yeah, you're creating problems. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. I have one more question for you, and then I'd love to just get your wrap-up thought. But that question is related to future research. What are you most excited about right now in the world of research as it relates to brain health and omega-3s?
0: Be speaking about what I'm doing now. <laughs> My group, I think we're close to some nice breakthrough regarding one specific tissues in the brain, which calls the core plex- so the choroid plexus is the tissue secreting cerebrospinal fluid within the brain. So the brain is bathed with a lot of like water. And this water is, is synthesized by this special tissue called the choroid plexus. And we've been able to dissect this specific tissue in the brain. And we're very excited about it because we've been performing like lipid profile, we've been performing transcriptomics. And we know that during aging, there's a huge modification of the transcriptomics of the core plexus. And people have been studying the brain in compartment, like in silos. And I think that we need to integrate all our different information we're getting from the different parts of the brain, but also connected to the periphery to make the story complete. And I think that we'll make great advancement with that. And especially since now we have a good like momentum with the cardiovascular field in omega-3s, which is now moving to have omega-3 drugs for lowering triglycerides. And I think that the next step will probably be for cognition, but we need to be very careful about how we design our things and to avoid fraudulent <laughs> paper. There are so many nootropics
2: that they're calling them now. And so different supplements for brain health and Joe Rogan has made a killing with his brand. So there's a lot of products out there, many of which seem to be geared around some sort of stimulant, may not necessarily be the best for long-term health either. I think there's a lot of question with regards to research and what people should consume on a daily basis long-term, which is I think why so many nutritionists just fall back on healthy diet first and then supplement a few key things like a multivitamin, an omega three, like from algae that we produce at Orlo Nutrition, or the basics like getting more vitamin D to support your immune health, and spending a little bit of time in the sun, making sure that you eat green leafy vegetables, and if you're not eating enough of them, also consume vitamin K two. If you have heart health markers for risk factors, maybe you would consider adding CoQ ten. But that these aren't the thing that every single person goes out there and just buys willy nilly. That you make informed decisions based on your personal health. And so I think the conversation we had just before we got started with this whole thing was this perspective that we're getting to a more personalized approach to nutrition because we have so much information available, because we can understand then that somebody who is of this ApoE4 type may have a harder time assimilating certain nutrients. Or if you happen to have an inborn insufficiency because of MTHFR expression or something along those lines that you're able to cater then your need for B vitamins and take the methylated form of B vitamins supplementally because of the knowledge that you're able to garnish. So I'm curious if you tend to recommend people in your life get a genetic test to understand what their health markers could be.
0: I'm very cautious about that (laughs) because there's different reasons for that. Like for the APOE4, I don't recommend it because currently we don't have anything like very specific to offer. And I think that for some people, it can bring more anxiety than benefits to know their genotype. So I think that once you have the genotype and you don't have anything to offer, then maybe it's doesn't worth it to Get the genotype. So, with my clinical trials, we don't divulge genotypes to participants. They need to agree to that because I don't want to deal with this anxiety it will generate to participants.
2: No, I understand that. From my personal perspective, finding out just a little bit, maybe nervous, but just happened to also come with the genetic test, and I didn't expect it to. So what's really interesting about how 23andMe is running their particular platform is that they have all these health screening questions that they'll allow you to participate in. I learned, for instance, that for some reason, my genetic composition, I'm less likely to be afraid of heights. And as it would turn out, I've jumped out of airplanes and never had a fear of that moment. Oh, I think that there's some other very interesting information that comes out of these sorts of assessments where they're taking broad swaths of the population and studying your genome type and then doing different sorts of surveys to individuals and then finding commonalities that are even behaviorally based and even preference based, like tends to enjoy adventure sports more than somebody who doesn't have this genome type. So very interesting.
0: Yeah, but I think that personalized nutrition is coming. and I think that nutritionist n- needs to be better trained for that because I think for specific nutrients, some specific nutrients, and I don't have any in mind, but it might be very helpful to optimize what nutrients should be taken and it what's in. I think it's just a perspective of different type of nutrients. and but for some specific cases, I think that it will come that like genetics will be very useful to make these nutritional recommendations.
2: Thank you so much for joining me today, Melanie. As we wrap up, I like to ask my guests if they could leave one message for our audience or our thought, a closing word, what would you like to share with them?
0: That's a very difficult question for me. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't thought about that, but I think that every life is a need to be balanced. As a researcher, we love, we're passionate about our work and everything, but still we have families. And I think that nutrition is a bit like this too. So we need to find the right balance and to find the right omega-3s to take because these are very important for our, our body, homeostasis, like the balance we keep inside inside the cells, inside the body, but inside our mind as well. So I think that that would be my key point. Balance is uh, it needs to be reached uh, for everybody to have a good health.
2: I think that's a good message to land upon. Ultimately, getting the best nutrition balance that we can to achieve our best health and also make sure we're not over-consuming omega-6s and under-consuming omega-3s because that won't be good for long-term health anyway. Exactly. Thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Thank you, Karina. It was a pleasure.
2: I will be sure to include links to where you can learn more about Professor Melanie Plourd's important work in omega-3s as it relates to brain health with our show notes, including this most recent study which specifically investigated the plasma-liver-brain connection of omega-3 fatty acids and as it would relate to even APOE3 and APOE4 genome types. For all of this detail, you can visit orlonutrition.com. There we will have our complete blog, including features that you won't find anywhere else. And if you have questions specifically to the content we covered today, I encourage you to reach out via email to hello at orlonutrition.com, or you can always reach out via show notes. I also want to remind everyone that if you want to go ahead and double down on your omega-3 game, you can visit oralonutrition.com and you can use the coupon code NWC10 for an added 10% off at your checkout point. And as we close today's show, I just hope you'll raise a cup of your favorite beverage with me as I drink a sip of my coffee and say my closing words. Here's to your health.
1: Thanks for listening to Nutrition Without Compromise. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. If you'd like to learn more, visit orlonutrition.com and join our mailing list. You'll gain access to complete show notes, features, and informative blogs, because nutrition shouldn't be an either or.